0: Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Today's reading from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 16. all the flaming darts of the evil one.
1: It's really good to see you. Um and my name is How I did oh, that so badly again. Oh help me. <laughs> is How word that's a bit faster. I am the pastor here of Westminster Chapel and everyone is welcome here. It's better than last time. Maybe you still not there. Uh, yeah, work in progress. But that's the kind of church we want to be, where everybody is welcome, feel up home, like different incomes, backgrounds, all of that kind of stuff. Great. Somebody is signing me applause at the back. Good job. That's excellent. Well, it's great to be with you again. We're in a wonderful series. It's based on Ephesians, first century letter. We've been in it since September the last year because we believe that every word has life power. From God. The scriptures are supernatural. They're reading you as much as you're reading them. And we're just digging into the last two of those verses, verses 15 and 16. So you want to have them open, and we're going to be drawing on them throughout this time together. I want to start talking to you, though, about feet. So if you have polyphobia, that's a fear of feet, you'll want to maybe just, I don't know what you want to do in this moment, but I'm sorry, (laughs) because I'm going to talk about ugly feet, neglected feet, forgotten feet, the part of our body we don't often maybe clean as much, so I thought I'd start by showing you, I haven't actually seen how this has come out yet, a slide of some ugly feet, oh, they're horrible, that's one of my feet, foot, feet, by the way, Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) um, somebody else's you can actually if you want to go online and waste a small part of your life you can find that they've ranked celebrities by their ugliest feet it's the kind of ranking that i personally appreciate when it comes to celebrities the people that our culture think are the most attractive successful impressive be like them but we like to see that actually look how ugly their feet are isn't that strange but it's a part of our body we neglect Yet, ironically, it's a part of the body that we use quite a lot. Like, I'm standing on them, even though you're sitting down, they're still connected to your body and on the floor. They help take us to places that are really important, but spiritually, they are absolutely essential to do what? To stand. To stand firm. To stand, 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 to withstand. Paul talks about it four times in this section, in this letter, so that you can hold ground against all of the evil that's out there in the world. Because if you don't know it yet, you are at war. You are at war with the anti-trinity, the unholy alliance of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they want to destroy you and ruin your life. You're in a battle. Why is there so much suffering and evil in this world? Why? Do bad thoughts often just pop into your head, seemingly out of nowhere? Why are you so often tempted to do the wrong thing? Where is all that coming from? Well, it's because Satan is real and he hates your guts. He hates humanity's guts. He wants to destroy your life. We talked about this about two weeks ago. Don't believe the lie that he doesn't exist. That's one of his schemes, to try and control you and to manipulate you and make you think that he isn't there, he isn't real. Because if you don't think that there is a spiritual war going on, you're then going going to take your war out because there's suffering in the world, and you're going to think you have to battle against flesh and blood to get, to get your way, to get what you want. Sorry, I know there's a sort of rigging, at least there is in my ear. Um, I'm sure we'll get that fixed in a few minutes. So there's a danger on that side. There's a danger on the other side to think that Satan is so powerful that I'm not responsible. It's all his fault. If it wasn't for him, I would be the nicest person on the planet, right? Well, that's also equally wrong. That's not right either. I like the English Puritan, uh, Thomas Brooks. He puts it like this He says, Satan has a persuading slight, but not an enforcing might. Satan is a con artist. He's a trickster. He's he's trying to get you chasing after and following things that you think are ultimately good. They'll satisfy you. They'll make your life happy and important and significant. But they're ultimately empty things that you're spending your time slaving, going after, that they will crushingly disappoint you in the end. Let me give you an illustration of this. It came uh, in the fuel crisis. Anybody remember that? Feels like we've just moved straight on past that. Those were the days where people were panic buying for petrol for their cars. They felt overwhelmed about what was going on. And there's this great story of a tanker carrying 44 tons of something. And somebody thought, oh, it must be a petrol tanker. I'll follow that. And then loads of other people think, oh, there's a petrol tanker. I'll follow that as well. And he had a whole line of cars following this, this tanker. Then thinking, like, that's worth chasing and giving my time to. That'll satisfy It was 44 tons of mortar. It turned into a building site in Northampton. And they were all utterly disappointed. And interestingly, the driver at the front blamed it on the tanker driver and said, he should have told us that he didn't have petrol in his tanker. Like, what is that? I'll tell you, if you're expecting Satan to tell you, don't follow after this thing. It's empty. It's not fulfilling. You are seriously deluded. And that's just one of the ways that he works. It's one of his schemes that Paul is telling us about. He hates your guts. He comes to seek, kill, and destroy your life, to ruin it. That's why we have to stand firm against his schemes. So we're all meant to put on this armor of God and stand firm on our own, individualistically in this society that we live in, right? No. As we heard, we are meant to do what? To stand firm There's a few who've got it. Should we try that again? No audience participation in London in the 21st century. Oh, how horrible! We're meant to stand firm, to be stronger. Excellent. You're doing so well. So I've got two points. Um, two questions I want to talk to you about based on these two items of armor uh, this morning. And I'm doing them as questions deliberately. Why am I doing that? So that you can chew over that. God uses a lot of questions, if you haven't noticed, as a discipleship tool. Where are you would be the first of those in the scriptures. So my first question to you is, have you lost your peace? I'm not trying to condemn you if that's the case. Many of us are feeling more anxious, troubled, worried about life and circumstances. It would be very understandable if your sense of peace had disappeared or dissipated or reduced in this time. I'm here to help you get your peace back. Roman soldiers wore something like a half boot. It's called a caligae. am not quite sure if I've pronounced it correctly, but there we go. And Basically, it had a very hard soul so that you could be assured that wherever you tread, if there were spikes in the ground, and that's what they would do back in the days of, of warfare, they put spikes in the ground, so if you, you, if you were barefooted, it would go right through your foot, so an army would be defeated. So it's got a strong soul, but not only that, you can see from the image, it's got what are called hobnails, like little studs underneath it to help you hold your ground, so that if you're being pushed and you can imagine an army's trying to hold ground, they're, they're pushing and shoving together, it's a bit more like rugby than warfare today, as it was back in the day, it will help you to stand firm and not be pushed over. And that's why it's lashed, not just on your foot, but to your ankle. This is the whole point about standing firm with feet fitted with this gospel of peace, that you're being shoved all the time. That's what the world, the flesh, and the devil are doing. They're trying to push you over down the slippery slope of sin to help you conform to this world so that you lose your sense of peace. That you can have with God through faith in him. You lose this sense of peace. What is this peace? Well the word here is it's about a steadying, readying peace. It means both things. It helps us to be steady. And it helps us to be ready. It's not just inner calm. You know all of that kind of stuff. It's about a shalom, a sense of well-being in the deepest part of your being where you know all is well and all will be well for me because of my relationship with Christ. This is the peace that comes through faith in Christ. But we... So easily lose this peace through sin. The resounding gong of guilt comes and it starts to unsettle us and you can feel shaken up by by shame. This is what happened to King David. Psalm 32 records it where he expresses what happens through his adultery and murder that he commits, and he feels like his bones are wasting away, like his soul has been dried up, like in a desert, in, in the heat of, of summer, that he is, he is feeling awful because of his sin, and the moment that helps him is when he acknowledges his sin to the Lord, when he confesses his sin. Psalm 51 is a longer outworking of that to recover what? The joy of his salvation. Let my ears hear your joy and gladness again that the bones that have been crushed through sin and guilt rejoice again. And he recovered his sense of peace. The sense of peace came back. I wonder if you're here and you're knowing the conviction of sin over your life. And you've become distant from God because of some idol you're worshiping, some thing you're chasing after, something's gone wrong, and today there's an invitation just to own it, to acknowledge it before God, and to come out of that lack of peace and into fellowship with him again. And if you confess your sins, he promises he will forgive you from all unrighteousness. There's not a sin he won't forgive. The unforgivable sin that people worry about, if you worry about it, you've almost certainly not committed it. That's the kind of principle of it, that that sin that's being talked about that God won't forgive is basically willful unbelief that you take to your grave. He will forgive all unrighteousness, all, every every sin. You can have your peace restored today. You can lose your peace as well through being Uh, unreconciled to other people, particularly in the body of Christ, where they've sinned against you or you've sinned against them, uh, or if they've sinned against you and you're the victim in this, but you don't respond in a righteous way to that, you harbor bitterness and anger and resentment and all of that, and there's a wall of awkwardness between you. You don't want to look at each other (laughs) in the context that you're in. You're trying to avoid being around them or with them. Um, it's It's not great, is it? And we're called in the scriptures to reconcile, to forgive one another, to move towards each other. Whoever you are in this exchange, there's no like, oh, well, the person who did this needs to move first. No, God requires both of us to move towards each other, to reconcile, to restore peace. Paul talks about it, Romans chapter 12, as far as it is possible, as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. To work together in that restore a sense of peace. Otherwise, if you don't do that, I believe you give the devil a foothold. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 27 talks about footholds where the devil's got a foothold against you by which he's going to more easily push you over because you're not at peace with other people. Another way that we can lose our peace is through pride. We become puffed up and, and arrogant. Um, and this is sort of one of the ways that, that the devil works. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermons on this passage, he helps us to see that there's sort of two challenges. There's one moment where Satan comes to make you think that you're so rubbish, you can't really be a Christian, and he tries to get you there. And as soon as you overcome that, he flips to make you think that you're so good that you don't really need God. <laughs> it gets you so proud, and you think, oh, I'm fine without him. I can, I can live on my own. That will make you lose your peace if you're proud. And this was part of the original temptation to Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter three, verse five. Satan's actually tempting them. He's saying, "You can be like God." So interesting, isn't it? You're so proud that you can think that you could be like God. Oh, I think we have a solution on its way. Here we go. Thank you very much. Um, so I just do that. I'll leave that there. Bear with me for a second. Um, there we go. Trying not to undress in front of you. This one doesn't seem. Hello. Spiritual warfare this morning. <laughs> um... I'll just take a moment, uh, is it, are we, should I swap with Guy? Is it, work- oh, <laughs> wow, it's working really well. You can shout at him. <laughs> we might have to turn the volume down, just a touch on that one, I think, maybe. Um, where was I? I've lost my train of thought. Um, anybody want to shout out, where was I? Um are we going? Lloyd-Jones. Proud. You're proud, are you? (laughs) Okay, sorry. So that sense of pride, there we were. That's the original kind of temptation to be like God. And there's a danger in in the sense, I was reminded of this this week, that in our pursuit of Christ-likeness, we can go too far and think that we can be Christ in the wrong sense, because there are Incommunicable characteristics of God to use the theological term, as well as communicable ones. There are attributes of God that we as human beings will, will never, ever have. And the devil wants to come and tempt us to make us think that we can have them. And that's the problem, because you're going to be really anxious if you're trying to be God. You were made to be human-sized, but you're trying to be God-sized, but you're spending all of your life feeling anxious and losing your peace, because you can't be God-sized. Well, just be human-sized. That's how you were made to be. More than that, though, you can get envious, and and kind of envious about other people, how they're living. I saw an image um, only a couple of days ago of all the different apps that are out there that match next to the seven deadly sins. It's really good. Um, So you have LinkedIn is about pride. Um, Amazon is about greed. Uber Eats is about gluttony. Um, Sloth was Netflix. And of course, Instagram is about envy. We want to live somebody else's life don't we? They've got a better life. I want to live their life. But we're called to run the race that was marked out for us. So it's not just about being human-sized in that. It's about being Howard-sized, Holly-sized, Stephen-sized, Sarah-sized, Joel-sized. We've each got a unique contribution to make. And when we deny that, we're denying the goodness of God. We're giving ground to, to the enemy against us. We mustn't give the devil a foothold. We lose our peace through all these different ways. How do we hold to our peace? Well, we do that by ruminating on who God says we are. We do that by ruminating and meditating upon the cross. That he died for me. That he suffered for my sin. That he paid the penalty for it and he cries out, it is finished that there cannot be any condemnation, there cannot be any judgment, there cannot be any accusation against me because I am one in him. His blood cleanses me of all my sin. I stand under the waterfall of the outflowing of the shed blood of Jesus who forgives me, who opens a way for peace that gives me access through his ripped apart, broken body, symbolic of the curtain being torn in two. And now I am entering into that most holy place where I can dwell with him forever. Forever, and I cannot be taken away out of that place I am at peace I am at peace I have a relationship with him what can man do to me now because my soul is safe with Christ in heaven that's where I'm seated in the heavenly places I can't be brought down now I am secure forever I am assured of this this is my salvation this is my confidence this is my my peace and I know it this is true this is the peace that changes everything that our feet are fitted with, and we then become immovable. You can't be pushed over when you've got this peace in you. It changes everything. It changes everything. This is the peace that enabled Martin Luther, the great reformer, to stand firm. To stand firm. It's all action this morning, isn't it? Um, That's the phone for the food bank (laughs) room. I don't want to over spiritualize things, but I've, you know, we are teaching about spiritual warfare. Is that all the devil can do? Um, it's terrible, isn't it? He can make a phone ring, or he can give a little bit of background noise. But we're going to we're going to keep we're going to keep pressing on, and I'm going to try and keep not forgetting where I am and getting distracted. Martin Luther, Martin Luther is there, and he feels like he's against the world, like he's up against the whole of the powerful Roman Catholic Church was hugely powerful back in the day, combined with the state Backed by Emperor Charles V, they want him to recant his confidence in the truth I've just said to you. By Christ alone, through faith alone, through scripture alone, through the glory of God alone. They want him to say, no, that was all rubbish. He's under immense pressure to concede ground. And this is what he says. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it's neither safe nor right to go against scripture, go against conscience May God help me. Amen. I love the way that it's been otherwise recorded in history. Here I stand. And I can do no other. This peace will help you to stand. This confidence in the truths that bring out this peace, to stand firm. It's what was there for the early church right at the beginning. Those first Christians who were so awfully persecuted. I've recently finished reading this great tomb of a book by Henrik Sienkiewicz. Apologies for the pronunciation. It's called Quo Vadis. It's a wonderful book where he's using history, accurate history that's recorded by people like Tacitus Um, well-respected non-Christian, anti-Christian, in fact, historian, and talking about what happened to the Christians during the great fire of Rome, AD 64. This is an actual event that happened. We're not quite certain how it happened. We suspect very strongly that Nero caused the fire himself so that he could write wonderful poetry about it, about seeing such a tragedy, so self-indulgent, and then build a city in his own honor that would be named after him, Neropolis and such like. That's the kind of the, the most confident explanation of why it took place. So he needed a scapegoat to blame the fire upon, and he chose Christians to blame. And so Christians were round up in the hundreds and thousands. They were brought into the arena to be eaten by wild dogs. And then they were were attached to stakes in the ground all around the area and along the Appian Way where they were burned alive. If you were living in Rome at the time, you would see light and you would smell burning Christian human flesh. This is real. This is history. I'm not making it up. And Henrik writes about it brilliantly and the impact of the way that these believers died upon Rome. And again and again throughout it, he comes the question of, who are they looking at when they die? Why is there such a peace on their faces? Why are they bowing and singing in joyful worship? They're about to be eaten by wild dogs. Why is there such a peace upon this people? And Henrik writes this, It was as if new followers sprung from every tear of a martyr. And each groan of pain in the arena found an echo in a thousand people. Caesar practically bathed in blood. Rome and the whole pagan world spun in a whirl of madness. Those who were finally sick of insanity as a way of life. Those who were downtrodden and victimized. Those who despaired and those who lived lives of misfortune and oppression. And those who sorrowed and felt pain came to hear. New stories about a God who let himself be crucified out of love for them. Finding a God they could love, they also found what no civilization of their time could give any more, the happiness that can be found in love. And the church grew through the blood of the martyrs, through the witness of them preaching the gospel of peace. This peace will help you stand firm, come what may in your life, Sickness, sorrow, great suffering. I think of Horatio Spafford. He lost his four-year-old son in the great fire of Chicago. He lost his entire fortune. He sent his family Um, Four daughters and his wife over across the Atlantic Ocean to go ahead of them. They were going to rebuild a life in England. But on the way in the Atlantic, that ship crashed with another ship and was was sunk. And then he receives the telegram from his wife saying, I only survived. I alone am left. All four of his daughters perished. So he takes that same voyage back To go and grieve with his wife. And God speaks to him. And he pens one of the greatest hymns that's ever been written. And it begins like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way. Those sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say. It is well It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, pushing us around, though trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control. I don't need to be in control. But this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. He has shed his own blood for my soul. I have peace Peace where it matters most, and I will not be moved. What a glorious truth for every Christian. Have you got that peace? Are you walking in that peace? Do you know that peace? It can be yours right now through bowing the knee to Jesus, through confessing your sin, it can be yours through reconciling with another member of this church or somebody else. Peace is available. Peace from all the anxious and all the trouble. It's yours in Christ. That's the first question. The second question is where is your faith? Where is your faith? Comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Paul is coming again to remind us, so I'm saying the same thing. You have an enemy and he is throwing flaming darts, arrows at you. These are malicious, evil, nasty accusations. This is the reality, what's going on spiritually. Maybe even now as you're sat here listening, these are coming at you again and again and again. And they're coming at you, particularly at opportune moments in your life. How do I know that? Because when Jesus was tempted in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus overcame temptation, Satan, it says, waited to leave him for an opportune moment. When are your opportune moments? Is it when you're doing really well? You feel so successful in life, you forget that God has put you there, that those are the gifts of God that he's given you to be outworked? Or is it when you are exhausted, tired, weary, worn out, that you tend to lose your temper and flip and get angry with people or, or, or presume the worst of other people? Satan is at work when you feel rubbish suddenly comes like, oh, you've been rubbish as a Christian this week. Who do you think you are? Satan is at work hurling accusations and arrows at you when you're about to share your faith. You want to step out and do something, pray for somebody, be a blessing to somebody else, and suddenly you're hit by thoughts of, that won't work. You can't do that. You're not good at that. You're going to fail. You're rubbish. They'll reject you. They won't like you. You might lose your job. That's the work of Satan. Satan is at work. When thoughts come into your head to think nasty things about other people or to think that other people think nasty things about you because he wants to divide and conquer the people of God. He doesn't want us to be stronger together because he knows how powerful a united diverse church is. Satan is at work when people suffer. And they begin to question, why is God doing this? Does he care for me? Why is this happening? Begin to attribute the work of Satan to God and blame God for it. How do we withstand this? That's what the shield of faith is for. It's different to the other articles of clothing because you're already wearing them. So you have to actually take this one up. Did you notice that in the text? It says, take up the shield of faith. You've got to take it up and align it particularly against the arrow, the untruth, the lie, the deception, the attack that is coming upon you. So you are matching the truth of God's word against the lie that's coming in. And it's a glorious shield. The Roman shield was four foot by about two and a half foot. So big you can hide behind it. It's great. Be safe. Like, oh, I'm out of the way. They can't get me now. I'm behind this shield. But what is this idea of faith? What is the faith? So just like, oh, faith is going to work. Faith isn't like that. Faith is all about the one you have faith in. It's not about the one believing, but about the one believed upon. So what is this shield of faith then? Well, the scriptures teach us the shield is God himself. Genesis chapter 15. God speaks to Abraham, I am your shield. You see it again, Psalm 33, Psalm 84. Throughout the scriptures, God is declaring, I am the shield. So when you're taking up the shield of faith, you're taking up your your faith in God. He's the shield that you can hide behind, that you get behind. So he takes all of the flaming darts of the evil one, so you're safe. Isn't that a glorious picture of the ministry of Jesus? On the cross, taking all the flaming darts of evil, all the judgment, all the condemnation, all the wrath of God upon him so you can hide behind him and be safe. Simply through faith. I love the way that Louis de Bernier describes this in his novel, Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Um. If you don't know the story, um, Captain Corelli and Carlo are eventually taken captive by, uh, with a load of soldiers with um, by the Nazis to be shot dead. They're facing a firing squad. And this is what de Bernier writes. He says, Carlo, who's Corelli's best friend, stood to attention next to Corelli, glad to die at last. After the shooting began... The prisoners wheeling and dancing in the horizontal rain, that's the bullets, they were crying out, they fell to their knees, their mouths filling with the dry and dusty tang of blood. Some stood up again, holding out their arms like Christ, bearing their chests in the hope of a quicker death, a shorter route through pain, a consummation to their loss. What no one had seen was that at the order to fire, Carlo had stepped smartly sideways like a soldier forming ranks. Antonio Corelli, in a haze of nostalgia and forgetfulness, had found in front of him the titanic bulk of Carlo Garcia, had found his wrists gripped painfully in those mighty fists, had found himself unable to move. Carlo stood unbroken as one bullet after another burrowed like white, hot, parasitic knives into the muscle of his chest. Eventually, Carlo flung himself over backwards. Corelli lay beneath him, paralyzed by his weight, drenched utterly in his blood, stupefied by an act of love so incomprehensible and ineffable, so filled with divine madness. Madness. You've got to take that and multiply it by infinity to begin to get a picture of the glorious madness of Christ and his love, the greatest shield of all, who grips our wrists to take all the punishment upon himself so we go free. The shield of faith is Christ. We hold up Christ and we begin to understand as we're holding up our faith, our confidence in Christ, that all of the arrows and all the attacks are ultimately about Satan trying to get to God through you. They're not just about you so much. They're about diminishing God. They're about undermining his character, his goodness, to say that something else is more lovely than Christ. And when you're holding up this shield of faith, you're saying, Christ is enough for me. Christ is glorious. His love is better than wine. His love is better than anything else in this life. Christ is my joy. He's my light. He's my hope. He's my salvation. He's everything to me. That's what we're declaring. I've not got my confidence in my good deeds. So if I think I'm a rubbish Christian, yes, Satan, I agree with you, but I'm not confident in that. If I feel bad and discouraged and depressed this day, that's okay, Satan, because my confidence isn't in that. (laughs) My confidence is in Christ. It's in Christ. He alone. That's the shield of faith. And it works. Even for the Christian who feels The weakest and most fragile who would say today, Howard, that's okay for you, but my faith feels like it's on here. Uh, Maybe my faith needs to be up at this level or at that level. You've got it so wrong because it's not about the quantity of faith. It's about the quality of your faith. It's not about the wrong believing, but the one believed upon. Faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. Why? Because it is faith into the mountain-moving God. The one who made the mountains. The one who makes the mountains tremble. Which means we can all have that faith. Because it's a gift of God. And it works. Did you notice that all in the passage... Some of you might be thinking, I don't know, this is another trick. Might work for some other people, won't work for me. Or might work on that issue, that accusation, but not this one. It says all, all the flaming darts will be extinguished. All of them will be defeated by you holding up your shield of faith. So as I come and draw to a close, this is the invitation that we have. However ugly your feet More than that, however ugly you feel your soul is, it can be beautiful through faith, through trusting in Christ. And when do you think it most shines, when you most shine out with the beauty of this gospel? Well, Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. He's referencing Isaiah chapter 52. You will be most beautiful when you're preaching the gospel of peace. When you're standing firm, when your shield of faith is up, when you're proclaiming. And you can do that with words, and we must. But like the early church, you can do that with your eyes. You can do that just by the look on your face, through all the trouble and trial that's going on. You can do that like the early church, when they sung songs of joy, when the world was against them. And if we do that, if we put on the peace on our feet, if we hold forth this shield of faith, if we put on the full armor of God as a church, not just on our own, but remembering the yawl, helping one another, Roman soldiers marched together, didn't they? There's that tortoise testudo formation where they're all. Have you got your shield up? Is your shield up? How are you doing? You got your shoes on today? Have you got the peace? Or can I help you? Can I help impart peace to you today? Can I help stir and raise your faith? My testimony, my story might give you faith so that your shield is held up high, that you can be strong, so that we are holding it up and we can then march forward effectively together to see what hundreds of lives saved. We're opening up this building in a matter of weeks. In an area historically that was called the Devil's Acre, I tell you, he'd still like it to be called the Devil's Acre. He's still the prince of the air of this world. And we are naming our cafe New Acre because we believe we're claiming new ground for the Lord as we engage in this spiritual battle against evil and darkness and deception and lies to see hundreds of people come in and get saved. You're going to see in the future people coming in on Sundays, but throughout the week, encountering the presence of God. And tears of joy pouring down their faces. This is the picture of our future reality together. As we take up the full armor of God. I want to read to you again before we pray and worship from this book, Quo Vadis. But I want to read it as a prophecy. For what God's going to do amongst us. You may want to close your eyes. You may want to bow your head, just to take a moment to absorb this in. Our culture today, we're not far off first century Rome. We're not. Those who are finally sick of insanity as a way of life. Those who are finally sick of capitalism, commercialism, consumerism, secularism, as a way of life, those who were downtrodden and victimized, those who despaired and those who lived lives of misfortune and oppression, and those who sorrowed and felt pain came to hear new stories about a God who let himself be crucified out of love for them. Oh Lord, we're so thankful that we can know a God who let himself be brutally crucified out of love for us. And Lord, I pray for every anxious soul and for every troubled heart here and watching online today that your peace would invade. Help them to confess and repent. Help them to reconcile. Help us all to put on this peace, to proclaim it in word and in deed. Help us to raise high our shield of faith and help us to encourage one another to hold up our shields together that we can guard against the evil work of the enemy and take ground simply by standing firm in the great truths of the gospel. A let's standless worship.
0: Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel.